we have been going through a series called Friend. Uh, this is the second to last week in this series. Uh, God set this up so that we wouldn't be reading in James on Christmas Eve service or Christmas service uh, because we already got Thanksgiving a mouthful from James and we weren't prepared to do a Christmas mouthful from James. Uh, so this is the second to last week. We've already started to wind this down when we uh, read, in, starting in chapter 4, where James kind of gives the crux of his message uh, and where we get this title from, asking the church, are you a friend of the world or are you a friend of God? And he calls the church, people who are supposedly people of faith, he calls them to conversion, to say, don't only speak and believe and hear, but become doers of the word, become people of action so that you don't just say you believe, but you actually do what you believe. And so James has been comparing and contrasting, saying the people of the world do these things, and he indicts the church, and he says, you have been doing these things too, but this is what the people of God do, and this is how the people of God should act. And he says, act like your faith, your profession calls you to act. And so today's sermon is from James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11, and, we are, and I, I named it Patient Anticipation. Patient, patient Anticipation. Last week was an important text for this week, because last week we learned what, that God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, and that the judgment of the proud does not always come right away, in fact, it usually comes at a later time. It comes before eternity. But during that time of being oppressed, we know that God will bring judgment. And that's what we learned about last week, that God will bring judgment to the arrogant, to the proud. Now, how should believers respond? A lot of times believers the people of God are in a waiting period of being oppressed, of being in this time where the arrogant get to run wild and do what they want, but eternal judgment has not yet come. The judgment of these people has not yet come. And so where does that leave us? And that is what James covers today. And we're going to pick up in James chapter 5, verse 7. You can read along with me on the screens. And we're going to read from verse 7 to verse 11. James says this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James starts out this exhortation to the church, to the believers, by saying, be patient until the coming of the Lord. We just read last week what the coming of the Lord meant. 
It was the day of judgment for the arrogant, the day of misery for them. It was the day, it is the day when the oppressed, the oppressor, the arrogant, all of the things that they have done would not get overlooked and the things that they have accumulated from their oppression, from their arrogance would now speak out and testify against them in the courtroom that on that day of judgment, the wealth and the indulgence that has stuffed their heart for the day of slaughter would literally stand as a witness against them on that day. On the earth, they may have fattened their wallets. They may have indulged on the backs of others for greedy profit. They may have saw gold. They may have seen wealth. They may have seen power in their life. But the day of the Lord was the day that those things would rise up against them and would literally be a testimony against them for a judgment that we cannot comprehend. So in the midst of this, this is the life that the church is living. It is living under a regime of oppression. It is living under a system of oppression. James starts off to the church. He says, therefore, be patient. Be patient. Patience literally is to wait and to remain. Be patient. Wait. Remain. When oppressed, James is saying to the church, when you are experiencing oppression, when you are suffering, be patient. When the unjust are getting wealthier, and they are indulging in their heart's desires, be patient, remain, stay steadfast. Patience in suffering is one of the main marks of a person who is obedient to Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Patience in suffering is one of the main marks of a person who is being obedient to to Jesus. James is writing to an oppressed church, if you understand the early church and the circumstances that they were going through. They were being murdered on a regular basis. They were being persecuted. They were being, being treated unfairly. There were rumors going around about the church, about the, the crazy occult practices that they were supposedly doing, and because of that, they were getting a name for themselves in the propaganda of the empire about these crazy sect of, Judaism, of, of Jewish people that were going around and they were cannibals and they were having orgies and they were doing all these crazy things. I mean, the media machine in the Roman Empire was running against the church. Does that sound familiar? But the church was living under the oppressed, was living under systematic oppression from the wealthy in the empire. And what's interesting here is these are people literally being murdered for their faith. They are being physically persecuted. They are being maligned. They are being dragged into courtrooms unfairly. James's word for them is not vengeance, James's word for them is not retaliation. 
James's word for them is not protest. James's word for them is patience. Why? Why is his word patience? Well, he says here, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. What happens is patience through suffering, patience through oppression, it reveals a precious fruit in the believer. It reveals a precious fruit in the believer. That precious fruit we have already learned about in James chapter 1, verse 12. James said this in the very opening of the book. He said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, what James is trying to get across here to the church is this, is the wicked will receive everything that is supposed to come to them. They will get all that their oppression, all that their arrogance, all their indulgence has stored up for them on the earth. It is coming. We can count on that day to be here. But something else will happen on that day. James is saying something else will occur. The one who has endured, the one who has been patient under suffering, under trial, the one who endures through temptation, that person, that church, will receive the crown of life, the precious fruit of patience. This is the wreath of great accomplishment. This, the, the crown of life is the Greek for the crown that they would give to the Olympian when they had won the gold medal. It is the wreath placed on the conqueror's head as he would walk into the city in all the glory with the army behind them saying we have subjugated new lands and we have won a victory. This is the wreath of great accomplishment, the, the greatest honor that can be bestowed on a person. James is letting the church know an internal, eternal inheritance that is greater than anything that we can have on earth. It is coming. You know, for the early church fathers, the understanding of eternity wasn't this hypothetical, it wasn't a hypothesis, it wasn't so theoretical in their mind. If you read throughout the New Testament and you read the early church fathers, you, you get a sense that eternity was at hand for them. The day of the Lord was not something that you looked to in a thousand years or two thousand years. It was something that was close. It was something that was at hand, something that they knew was coming. And I, I, I think some, something that we get lost in today in Western society and modernism is this understanding of eternity, that it has, even in the church, become many times a, a theory or something that is a, a far off. You know, I, I think in America, we just don't like to think about our mortality where, you know, in the ancient Near East, in the early church, and for thousands of years, mortality was an everyday part of life. You know, the understanding that tomorrow was not guaranteed to you 
as we read last week, was a common understanding because we have modern medicine today. We can get into this perception that our life is guaranteed, that eternity is always going to be far off, that it is something that we don't have to keep ever present in our mind. But as you read the New Testament, as you read early church fathers, you begin to understand something, that eternity is something that we have to keep at the forefront of our lives because what will happen is we will get so wrapped up in the now and in the earthly things that our mindset becomes to to this understanding that the world has. It becomes earthly, it becomes fleshly, and it becomes demonic. But if you look at all the conversations that Jesus had in the Gospels, you realize that there is one thread that is woven into every single conversation, and that is an understanding of eternity. And the church needs to have eternity ever-present in its hand. And the reason is, is because the earth does not look to eternity because for the earth it is a day of judgment. It is a day of misery. It is a day when the oppressions that they have oppressed others with, they will feel the weight of. But for the church, the day of eternity, eternity, the thought of eternity is, is the time where our endurance, where our patience is rewarded with the precious fruit of the crown of life where we get to go to God and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we will be in the gates of heaven eternally in the presence of God without sin or sickness. And what happens is when our mindset is wrapped up in earthly things, it reveals our friendship, a friendship that is with the world. And we forget about the heavenly things that are promised to us. You know, when you are going through a time of suffering, when you are going through a test or a trial in your life, it's really easy to get so stuck in the present that many times the word for us is vengeance, the word for us is protest, the word for us is retaliation because we are stuck on the now and we lose our witness because we cannot think further than today. We can't think further about what my emotional state is right now and I need to make sure that I get how I feel out on you. But when we do that, we lose our witness as the church and we begin to walk away from our eternal gift in Christ Jesus. So be patient, James says. He says, establish your hearts. We have seen in James what the wicked have done with their heart. They have stuffed their hearts. They have indulged their hearts. They have been filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in their heart. But James's word to the church is, a friend of God needs to first, we read, purify their hearts. All the indulgence, the jealousy, the ambition, the stuffing, all these things that we have been 
cramming into our hearts, into our dreams, into our life goals, into our ambitions, the things that we have desired need to be purified from us. The earthly, the fleshly, the demonic things that we have said, this is what we want. God purifies that. And then James says, let your heart be established in the things of God. Let it be established for the day of judgment, that it will be on solid ground. The word establish literally means to make your purpose and your courage firm. That means when the trials are here, when the tests are here, when that person pissed you off for the last time in your life and you can't take it anymore and you are ready to cuss them out to high heavens and into hell for eternity, when you are done with your boss micromanaging you for the last time, when you have had enough of your spouse chewing out your ear, when you are done with these things, James says, let your purpose and let your courage stand firm. Because in those times when it is very easy to have vengeance, when it is very easy to protest what is happening, when it is very easy to retaliate, you have to remember the purpose that God has called you to. What, where am I headed to? Where am I going? It is not about how I feel in this moment right now. It is not about what this person is saying to me. It is not about what this person is doing to me. It is not about where I am in my emotional state. It is about where I am going for eternity. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 to 13. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may what? Establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. See, this was, this is how the early church thought about these understandings of trial, about oppression, about the coming of the Lord. Now, what did Paul say? He says here, establish your hearts, but how do you establish your hearts? He says, establish it in holiness and blamelessness. And we have read already so many times how James pulls from Leviticus 19, the royal law that starts out, be holy as God is holy. Now, how do you do that? Love your neighbor. And what does Paul say here? To establish your heart in holiness and blameless, abound in love. Follow the example of how we have loved you, now love others the same way. When you establish your heart for the coming day of the Lord, you are doing what James has called the church to do, and that is to follow the royal law. That when God 
when you realize the beauty of the gospel that I am a sinner, that I do not deserve his grace, but yet while I was still in my sin, Jesus came, he died blameless yet accused, suffering on my behalf, going to that cross in obedience to the Father. When you realize that, you get the perfect example of what then we are invited to do as his followers. Jesus says, no servant is greater than the master. Meaning that we as his servants are supposed to see him as the master and follow his example. If he suffered, if he was oppressed, if injustice was done to do, and he endured in silence and impatience for the resurrection, then how much more is his church called to endure? But in our endurance, we cannot forget about the resurrection. See, so many times we have this fatalistic understanding of our life where it's just like God hates me and I'm going to be in pain forever and this is just my life. And that's not it. We forget about the eternal reward that is given to us when we endure, that so often when we read about suffering, when we read about oppression in Scripture, it is always thinking about patience, that this is a short time when you think about eternity. That if you were to think about your lifespan in the understanding of eternity, God is really just saying, be patient for a little while. Just like the blade of the grass, one day it is here and the sun burns it up. Just like a mist, a vapor that is here and then blown away by the wind the next. That is what our life is like in the grand scheme of eternity. Be patient. And while you are being patient for this short time, while you are waiting, it is important to remember something. And this is why I continue to love James, because he knows the church. He knows, what the, he knows the human nature and how human nature has invaded the church. And so in verse 9, he says, while, while you're being patient, while you're waiting for this, what? Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. They are being oppressed They are sometimes being hunted and killed. They are being dragged unfairly into courts. And there is an easy way to lose your witness when God is calling us to be patient. And it is this. It is called complaining. It is called complaining. This word literally means heavy sigh. You ever like somebody just asked you about your day and you just, you know, your eyes? You just saw your brain for a second, they went so far back. <laughs> Man, I, I'll tell you, there is, I think, no greater actionable witness than somebody going through a hard time 
And when I ask them how they're doing, that they don't complain, but they glorify God. I mean, there, it is a rabbit trail, complaints. Because when you begin to feel the need to complain and grumble about anything against anybody, you realize that there is a lot more that you could be complaining about. I mean, we could endlessly complain about everything. But James says, to be patient, do not grumble against one another. Do not complain about each other. Do not give in to the temptation that says you are justified to be mean today. Do not give in to the temptation that says you are justified to slander and to gossip today. Do not give in to the temptation that says I have every right to be a complainer today. Because let me tell you what that person did to me. And let me tell you why they deserve the wrath right now. And so often, so much sin starts off with that. So many Christians lose their witness with sentences that start similar to that. Of, yeah, I'm, I'm going through something, and you are going to feel every ounce of that with me. <laughs> every dot. And sometimes that can be our relief. That that is what we look to. That we have best friends. That all we do with one another is sin with one another. AKA, complain about people, slander others, stay in states of justifying our meanness. All right, my dad used to always tell me something when I was younger. And I hated him for it when I was a kid. And whenever I would get mad, and my dad, and I would do something dumb, you know, I would, I would hit somebody. I was a fighter as a kid. I would hit somebody. I would scream at somebody. I would do something awful. You know, I was, I was the kid. I was suspended from school a few times, and I went to a Christian school during these times, you know. <laughs> I was in detention almost every day in middle school. I mean, I, I did not, I, I, I had a retaliation heart, and my dad would come, and he would say, Justin, what happened? And I would always start off, well, this person did this. You know, Johnny was really mean to me, and he said something, and sometimes I'd try to irk him. He said something about mom, dad. You know, we can't stand that. I can't take somebody saying something about mom, right? You with me on this as your wife? So of course I was going to get mad. Of course I was going to hit him. Of course I was going to curse him out. This, this, he deserved that. And my dad would always say something that would annoy me, but as I got older, I realized he was right. He would say, Justin, nobody controls your emotions but you. 
Nobody controls your emotions but you. You never, ever tell me that that person made you do this. Nobody can make you do anything. You control your reactions. So if you are screaming at them, I don't care what they did to you. I care about how you are reacting to them. If you're hitting this kid, I don't care what he did to you. I care about how you're reacting to him. I mean, you would think after like the hundredth time I would get this. But I always had these excuses. Dad, but you don't understand this time was different. What my dad was trying to instill in me as a child was what it meant to walk this earth as a Christ follower. That we lose our witness, we lose our friendship when we begin to retaliate, to complain, when we begin to justify our actions for the things that we do. The temptation will be strong. But as we read, our speech has the ability to allow the enemy to establish himself in our hearts, in our life. So are we going to establish our heart by enduring patiently until the day the Lord comes? Or will we allow instead the enemy to establish himself among our very members by how we grumble, complain, react, and justify what we have done? Will we allow the world's death and decay through the things that we say enter into our midst? Or will we be patient and endure? James says it is possible to be patient in the midst of suffering and oppression. And he gives us some examples. Thank you, James. Verse 10. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You know, if you read the Old Testament time and time again, you read about how the prophets were continually rejected by Israel. And Jesus makes this point known when he comes. He says that you have rejected every single person I have sent you over and over again. Some were killed. Many were seen as just, we don't want to hear from you. They were shunned. But what happened? James is saying these people are revered by Jesus. And because they are revered by God... They are revered for all time. Like now, Israel, you look back at Isaiah and you look back at Elijah and you look back at Samuel and you look back at Moses and you think, what amazing people these were. But during the time, how much complaint did they have to suffer? I mean, I, I believe it was Isaiah that was cut in half, sawed in two. But what has happened James says, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. These people are blessed for all of history for their patient endurance and trust in God. And then he says, most of all, look at Job. 
Look at Job. You know, one of the most misunderstood books just because of the dude's name. So many people. I remember one of my friends said he, the first time his dad read the Bible was he was going through a hard time. He got laid off, and he said, oh, this is called Job. Let me read this. Maybe this will help me. I was like, he didn't know what he was getting himself into when he read the book of Job. Because when you read Job, this is a book about a guy suffering everything you could possibly imagine a man can suffer. I mean, he lost his wealth. He lost his family. He lost his health. His friends, his best buddies mocked him for his faith. And even his wife mocked him. I mean, he lost Everything, everything. And still, he did not curse God. He did not grumble. He did not lose his witness, but he patiently endured through all suffering and oppression. In the end, his steadfastness was rewarded. He was blessed. It says in Job chapter 42, verse 10, it says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, these people that are mocking him. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. See, the day of judgment will be dreaded by the wicked. But the same day is the day that the righteous patiently await for the blessing of the Lord. It's when the crown of life will be given to those who love God. Because the God who creates, the God who sustains, the God who reveals, the God who saves, the God who judges is rich in what compassion and mercy, James says. So this very day of dread for so many is the very day of patient anticipation for the body of Christ. Because it is the day that the precious fruit that we have labored over will come and give reward. Church, we cannot allow our circumstances to dictate our obedience. We can't. We have to come to grips with this understanding that suffering is part of the Christian walk. It is inherent because of the world's ways that are not God's ways. And the world and its ways will always reject God and his ways. James has made that clear. Friendship with the world means enmity with God. You cannot have it both ways. Suffering will come. It's not the ones that attend Sunday service during a particularly bad time in their life or particularly good time in their life that makes a follower of God. It's not someone who says they just believe. James reminded us, even the demons believe and shudder. It's the one who is patient in turmoil 
who keeps their heart pure and endures through suffering with patience in anticipation for the day of glory. I lost my job. Still, I will serve you. My health is gone. It's deteriorating. Oh, the great day that I will be in heaven and sickness will be no more. My loved ones have left me. God, you are my sustainer and no one else. I will not become bitter. I will not complain. I will not grumble. I will worship the God of the universe that he would count me worthy enough to share in his sufferings. That's what Paul says. That I am worthy enough to share in the suffering of Christ, to be like him in his suffering, to experience just a fraction of what he experienced. Thank you, God, for counting me worthy to experience the things that you do, the things that you did for me. Patient suffering in anticipation of the revelation of God's glory in our life is the mark of Jesus. It is the mark of his church, and it has to be the mark of our lives. The wicked may enjoy more comfort on earth, but let me tell you, they will dread eternity. We may suffer here on earth, but my hope is in the day of his glory. My hope is in the day of his vengeance. My hope is in the day where the fullness of God is revealed. Not in this momentary satisfaction of retaliating, of getting something off my chest, of complaining. My hope is in that day when all is revealed. Do not let your earthly circumstances rob you of the greatest blessing that God has set aside for all eternity, for all of those who call on his name. Do not let the circumstances that we face rob us of the greatest thing God is going to give. We may experience great blessing on earth. We may be in a time of that in our lives right now. And we may be in a time that all that is taken from us. But all that God has stored up in eternity for us, the imperishable gift of eternal salvation, is much greater than whatever we may have or may not have here on earth. Can you stand with me and pray? We worship you, Father. Father, I pray that we would be a patient church. That we would be an enduring church. That we would be a steadfast church. 
Lord, in a time where everything is mine and everything is now, where if it's not in front of me in 20 seconds, then I'm annoyed and I'm mad, that we would patiently anticipate the day where we get to be with you for eternity. The day when every wrong is righted, the day that the wicked are judged and the righteous rejoice. Lord, I pray that we would not live for the moments, for the different things and now, for the pleasures of this world, but that we would live for that crown of life, that we would patiently endure whatever this life has to bring, that we would establish our hearts by loving our neighbor through all that the winds and the storms of life have to bring. And that we would anticipate, God, the riches of your glory that will be revealed to all of humankind that in every way that we have looked upon the earth and we have thought about the now and we have been sad about what is in our earthly possession, I Father, I pray, Father, that you would reveal to us the greatness of what you have to come. That we would be a people of eternal significance and not momentary pleasure. Let eternity weigh on our hearts. Let it sit, Lord, in our minds and in our questions and in our Father planning and in our emotions. Lord, let eternity weigh on our decisions. In Jesus' name we pray.